absolutely ridiculous. Hello everyone, welcome to Around the Course Squash podcast. On today's show, we welcome Sam Cornett, who has an interesting anecdote about big Nico mooning. In other words, showing his ass. We might have to get the big man in next week to defend himself, or at least give his side to the story. But today we'll enjoy Sam's, Sam's take. <laughs> With me as ever is Christopher Sackvey and Stuart Crawford. How you doing, fellas? Doing great. What's up, boys? Well, no, boys. <laughs> Stuart, you got a grave. Great beard. Uh, it's laziness. No, no, but it's still grey. I mean, it didn't. It's not. It's not grey because you're lazy. <laughs> yeah. I'll accept that. Saved a uh, couple, couple uh, near death experiences over the last uh, couple days. So just, um, you know, just living on the edge. Nothing like it. Tell us what happened today on a on a bike ride. My first bike ride with um, with another member of my biker gang. We're a biker gang of two cruising top speed coming around the corner and see that see that there's about a hundred meter downhill and a, a stop sign with with cars going going across so I'm, I'm coming into this you know downhill super hot hit hit the back brake fishtail hit the back brake again fishtail in the other direction start hitting both brakes and just start slipping and sliding like a snake down the hill and <laughs> somehow managed to almost put like a hockey stop on it where I turn the bike sideways and uh I, I'm not even I'm you, you guys know I'm not experienced at all so I don't even remember clipping out of the right foot but I must have and then somehow the left foot just came out I think God took the wheel there and the bike <laughs> the bike just kind of slid down the hill 10 feet and I landed on both feet no no scratches no nothing and the bike didn't get run over either, so that was that was a win. Um, but yeah, that was my my first uh, first first fall and first near the death experience on the bike. And uh, yeah, a bit bit of wet roads, and I guess not knowing what the hell I'm doing. The judges gave you a perfect ten for the dismount. <laughs> I'm I'm gl- I'm glad I I'm glad I was with someone because he was like unbelievably impressed with how i came out of it he's like that was the most graceful thing you could have possibly done there i could be having an olympic sport just cycle downhill <laughs> and then do a somersault off a bike while you're going downhill a bit like uh what's your man's name buzz lightyear falling with style <laughs> yeah the, o- the only other the only other time i remember i mean i'm sure i fell a bunch as a kid but you never feel anything the only time other time i fell was probably like 10 years ago riding like a really crappy you know hand-me-down bike not not a you know not a not a road bike or anything and I stepped I stepped down with all my weight on the pedal and the chain skipped and my weight all went down and the back of the bike just totally flipped up and I landed on my back with my feet on the pedals and my hand on the handlebar and just like perfectly didn't no scratches once again no helmet um, so I'm two for two. I'm going to knock on wood and, uh, hope I don't have to do anything magical again. Did you keep pedaling upside down? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Sounds like you could be a stuntman. <laughs> yeah. <Sign him> up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Except I, had, I don't think stuntmen are as scared as I am every time this happens. I had a fall. I had one fall on the bike about two years ago. And I'll never forget it. I'm going around, so on a bike path and do a little U-turn. And as I do the U-turn, I'm going like super slow, like half a mile an hour. <laughs> and I couldn't, I wasn't going fast enough for the, for the bike to stay up. And I'm just like <laughs> leaning over in the U-turn and I just couldn't get my foot out in time. and just fell. And I looked around the corner and of course there's like six or seven kids, like eight, nine years of age, just looking at me and they're like gobsmacked, like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> how did how did he fall off the bike? Anyways, my uh, my ego was severely dented that day. <laughs> so I just looked it up. My my high speed today was uh twenty twenty nine point eight miles an hour, and that was probably like just as I was coming into this turn into this downhill. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. One of the things that's crazy is that the average speed in some of the Tour de France stages is higher than that, and it's like. I've been like you, Chris. I've been out on a bike and I've come back and I've checked my GPS and seen what my highest speed was. And you're like, oh, that's not too bad. And then you're like, 
I felt like I was flying on that downhill and they're averaging that on the flat and sometimes even uphill they're going at that sort of speed. It's crazy. Those boys are absolute machines, beasts. And if you look at their watts and if you compare it to a gym or if you jump on a bike in your local gym and if you're holding 250 watts, give or take, for most people, that's that's pretty hard going. And anything in excess of that starts to get into interval type sessions. And you see cyclists banging out multiple 500 watt effort, efforts up the mountains and the air's getting thinner and the effort's lasting for like, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes at a time. And it's, it's ridiculous. And Stu, you may, you may have heard this anecdote on the cycling podcast this week where Armstrong, granted, you know, there's all sorts of play there. And Pantani goes ahead of him at the bottom of Mount Ventoux. And Armstrong, he's on the radio to his doctor, Dr. Ferrari. And he works out, like he's asking him, can he sustain it? And he works out that Pantani was doing like X watts and he was above his threshold. And so Armstrong just bumped up his effort up a wee bit and a couple of Ks later caught up with him. And I can't exactly remember how, how that finished. Uh, I think Armstrong came back and then they basically finished the stage together. Is that uh, the one that he let Pantani win? Yeah, I think that's the one you're talking about. Yeah. The, the one that stands out for me is uh, Bradley Wiggins, when he set his hour record, averaged 440 watts for an hour. Now, like we were talking about, if you want to do an interval session, just try cycling at 440 watts for one minute and see how that feels. And then think that someone did that nonstop for an hour. That is frightening. Yeah. This is, this is, this is why running and cycling kind of, um, you know, they, they throw me off a little because I, it's just so easy to measure yourself as like the most inferior athlete when you can't score <laughs> points or anything. And you're just like, okay, that was a pretty good pace for me. And then it's like, okay, that was, you know, like, you know, 10-year-olds can run faster than that. And, and same in cycling. It's like the amount of people that are so much better than me at these exercising sports, it's just, it's demoralizing. I feel that way about running. I've, I mean, I spoke about it in the past that I run a lot and consider myself a decent amateur. But when Kipchoge, who's the Kenyan guy who set the sub two-hour marathon last year, when he did that, his average pace was the same pace that I can maintain for about 300 meters. And he ran, <laughs> he ran 26 miles at that pace. And he would have dropped me. If we were doing that session on a track, he would have dropped me before the end of the first lap. <laughs> and he, I think it's 105 laps of a track you need to, do to run a marathon. And I couldn't even manage to keep up with him for one. And like I say, I consider myself an above average, average runner. I'd be, I would consider myself the same sort of on, on two wheels in the bike. But then when you throw like a 440 watts for 60 minutes, yeah. that's just outrageous. I mean, if you want to try it, I think he was averaging, this is Kipchoge, not Wiggins, but I think he was averaging 68 seconds per 400 meters on the track. So if you just want to go to your local track and run one lap, see if you can run under 68 seconds and then see if you can keep that up for another 104 laps. I can tell you the answer now to the second part of that question. What's the second part? <laughs> can you, if you can keep it up. I mean, the answer is clearly no, unless your name is Elliot Kipchoge. I'm just trying to work out how many laps I could do without stopping at that pace. And I think I could probably do about 600 meters. Yeah, possibly. I've seen you run a lot faster. We might need this on, we might need this on film, Stuart. <laughs> I've seen Arthur do a 400 or an 800. I think it was an 800. Did both uh, up at Amherst. Yeah, I don't remember the time for the 800. I remember it wasn't that bad, but the 400 would have been 60 seconds. Uh, I remember Jamal was sort of a similar pace. See, I, I don't have that speed, so I can sustain a reasonable pace for a decent amount of time, but I just can't go much faster for a short period of time. I can't do either. <laughs> <laughs> I'll split the difference twice. You can just do dismounts <laughs> off a bike at, at 29 miles an hour. Which, yeah, yeah, to be fair, yeah. if, you, if, if you look at me and Stuart, I mean, Stuart Howell already has a track record of falling off, not with style, and getting <laughs> severely hurt. And I definitely would be in his uh, genre for that. So, uh, kudos, man. Small win. Small win, which, uh, yeah, is actually a big win. It's actually a big win, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were a few cars whizzing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yikes. Moment of silence. Um, <laughs> moving on 
Sad news in Ireland and in Irish sport last week as Jack Charlton passed away. A great man, a World Cup winner with England in 1966. He was the Irish manager from 86 to 95 and he took us to our first ever major championship in 88 and back-to-back World Cups in 90 and 94. When I heard the news, it was it was sad, but it also brought up a lot of great memories. And for most people my age growing up in Ireland, you know, that would have been our... Italian 90 would have been our first ever sporting memory. And I suppose on that note, fellas, what's your first sporting memory? Uh, mine is probably World Cup as well. So I remember, I'm a bit older than you, Arthur, I hate to say it, but uh, I actually remember Mexico in 86. Um, what do you hate to say? That I'm a bit older than you. Oh, okay. I also hate to say that <laughs> I remember something that took place in the 1980s, but that's just the way it is. Aye. Um, but yeah, I remember watching, I think I was five years old. I was actually living in Malta at the time. And I remember the matches were quite late at night and um, my dad would record them and I would get up at 6 a.m. the next morning, like rewind the VHS and play the match and watch the whole thing through before I went to school the next day. So yeah, I remember, I actually remember the England-Argentina match from that World Cup where Diego Maradona scored his... A, his handball and his wonder goal as well to knock the English out. That was must have been amazing just to see that live. Yeah, it was. It was also, the, it's actually the first memory I have of realising that as a Scotsman, you don't support the English. Just, <laughs> the amount of, I just remember my dad cheering as soon as Argentina scored and I'm thinking, England like nearby to us and didn't we just fight the Falklands with the Argentinians? doesn't matter. This is football. We want the English to lose. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Chris? Yeah, first sporting memory uh, that I can think of is 96 Olympics. We took a TV out on the back porch and hooked it up. And uh, watching Donovan Bailey uh, win gold in the 100 meter, that was probably the first one. And, and I, I think I actually met him sometime probably in the next five years he happened to be at uh white oaks squash club i was uh grew up at and him and one of the other guys on the that also won the four by hundred relay together and they were just i can't remember what they were doing but they were hanging out and i happened to be in like the hot tub with them at the the time (laughs) and they signed uh they signed like a junior squash shirt that i that i you know might be somewhere still in the archives Jeez, class what about you uh, for me, it was Italian 90 and Ireland were in the last 16 against Romania. I don't remember a huge amount about the group games. It, they were all draws. It was Holland, Egypt and England. Anyways, we got through the group stages and we're playing Romania in the last 16. And I'll never forget, myself and my brother are sitting in front of the TV screen on the ground. I'm, I've got a yellow beaker with tea and lots of sugar in it. And we're wearing, our, you know old Irish jerseys with the Opal Corsa sign in the middle. My father and my uncle were on the couch just to our right. And not much really happened in the game. I don't remember a huge amount about it. Just the intensity or the suspense in the actual, uh, the atmosphere in the house. It was so tense. And, you know, goes to extra time and then everyone's on the edge of their seats just hoping for either a goal or or just certainly not to concede one. And then when it got to penalties, and you know everyone's kind of banging them in, no no problem. It gets to the fifth penalty, and Packy Bonner saves. And I remember thinking at the time, that is the most acrobatic dive across a goal I have ever seen. <laughs> and when you look at it now and you compare it, it's actually not. And for about eight seconds, the house went nuts. And myself and Brian were, were getting excited in the same way that uh, our, our dad and our uncle were what you know if, if if dad and john my uncle were excited we were excited so we were kind of you know giving it large ones and and it was all, all of a sudden it was like you know finger on the lips shh, and a great you know there's a great commentary george hamilton and never never a truer truer line it's become very famous now and it's the nation holds its breath <laughs> and he was right because it it did like everyone was silent at that at that moment. And David O'Leary pops up; he's a defender, and uh, anyways, he he bangs it in the back of the net, and happy days. And the whole <laughs> we all went mad. And I'd never seen my old man jump that high, and he I'm I'm almost certain he hasn't jumped that high since. Nor my uncle John, and 
we used to, we lived in Crumlin on the Long Mile Road, and Dad and John and you know shortly followed by myself and Brian ran out the door, and everyone came out in the front of their houses. They were, you know, cars were beeping their horns, people were cheering and singing and dancing. It was and celebrating, and one of the coolest things about it, it was the first time Ireland had done it, and we were all there, and we were all experiencing Ireland going that far in a World Cup, you know, together. You know, my uncle my father who you know it was their first time to see it our first time to see it and we all kind of shared that together and, and everyone in the whole country did at that time and everyone who was around uh, won't, won't forget ever won't ever forget that yeah it was it was unbelievable yeah i remember italian 90 i was obviously four years older than previously when i remember mexico 86 but i was nine years old by that point and you start to get a much better sense of what things like that mean and how important they are and you're probably the same with USA four years later. You probably remember a lot of that as much as you do the earlier memory. But I remember a lot of the games in Italia 98. And I also remember I actually went to France 98 when that was the last time Scotland qualified for a major event. And we played Brazil in the opening match. And we were, my dad, my, myself and my brother were in the Scotland sort of supporters club. And because there was so many requests for tickets, you could either get the ticket to the Brazil game and that was it, or you could get tickets to the two other group matches. Uh, And we decided to take tickets for the two other group matches, which was Norway and Morocco. But we still went over to Paris for the opening game against Brazil. And we thought we'd maybe see if we could pick up tickets. But I think think my dad got quoted something like 1,500 euros or pounds, something like that each. Um, for, and there was three of us there so he decided that wasn't quite worth I think my mum would have forgiven him if he'd <laughs> broke the bank on three tickets for a football game yeah, <laughs> I think it was man <laughs> but yeah such good memories and we also went to Euro 96 which was in England when Scotland played England at Wembley and they also played that's uh, right that was when Gascoigne scored his famous goal exactly yeah, I, was at that, I was at that game oh uh, and Scotland had just missed a penalty about, I would say, less than two minutes earlier with Gary McAllister. Oh, yeah, um, what a player he was as well. Yeah. So, yeah, good memories. And I don't think I've, I'm not sure I've been in a football match since. Maybe I've been in a couple, actually, but not many. Yeah, it's funny. We used to go to all the home games. It's not, sorry, not in the, ni- in the early 90s, but from about 95 onwards or 94 onwards. Uh, 94, 95 onwards. So I used to play local soccer team, New Oak, New Oak Football Club, and we used to get schoolboy tickets for all the home Irish football games. Two pound a pop. So the the day out was six pounds. So we give it to Georgie, who was uh, who used to run the club. <laughs> give him the six pounds that covered our bus fare, and there was a bunch of us there that went young and old. Bus fare to the to the uh, to the match with all, all the same people from the same club. Two pound for your ticket. And then we'd go home, we'd stop off in the putching still. All the outlets would have a few pints. We'd go down, hang out in the chipper and have a couple of bags of chips. And boom, Bob's your uncle, Mary's your auntie. <laughs> Good times. But uh, yeah. I was going to say, I'll give you the, uh, the Canadian version of, of, you know, my, my memories. But it's not that long ago, actually. Uh, I've, I've got the memory of a goldfish too, guys. So that's why, like, you just, you, with the imagery you're bringing out from... Uh, from the early early 90s i'm uh, shocked because i don't remember what happened a couple years ago but um <laughs> 2013 when i was working at brown living in providence rhode island uh it's it's around march break time uh spring break time so i'm home in canada leafs are down 3-1 to the bruins um the toronto maple leafs are down 3-1 to the bruins i'm watching at home with a bunch of my buddies and all of a sudden you know leafs win Leafs win game five. And then, so we're, we're home. Okay, everyone, we're getting together again for game six. Game six, Leafs win. And, like, immediately I, I'm about to go back to Providence, and my, one of my best buddies is a diehard Leafs fan. Immediately we get on StubHub or whatever, Ticketmaster, and we, we, we look up tickets to the game. And for some reason they weren't, you know, they weren't outrageously expensive. So we, uh, I was like, you want to go on a road trip? back with me so we drove we drove straight to boston from canada game seven and do either you guys know uh know what happened (laughs) no but i can't wait to hear the old old hockey game 
So Leafs are up uh, 4-1 with 14 minutes left in the game. And so, you know, basically we have all these Bruins fans around who started the game, like me and mugging us and kind of chirping at us because we were in Leafs jerseys. And it got to the point where the game was so out of hand and the Leafs were like dominating that everyone just kept, kept where people were leaving, leaving the rink and saying, you know, you guys are too good. Good luck next round. And they, they were defeated, like completely defeated fans. Um, and if people know Boston sports fans, they, they usually, they usually don't say nice things like that. So <laughs> Leafs end up blowing a four, one lead with like 14 minutes left and, uh, cool. and lose. And then at the end, and the people who were left in the stands, which was quite a few, were just shredding us, <laughs> just shredding us after. And that's like my crazy, that's my craziest sports, like memory and moment being, being in, you know, in the stands for that was just absolutely wild. Oh, go to it. And it's like one of the worst collapses in sport history, any sport. And I'm trying to think of something that I've experienced like that. And I'm struggling to come up with something that. Live stream. Maybe my own career. I did this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I can join that club too. <laughs> Anyways, um, with Jack Charlton, just one thing I wanted to touch on was, I mean, such a great coach. He, controversial in ways. I mean, Ireland, you know, looking back on it, had a lot of really good players. It was, it was said that they should play the game a certain way, but he was very strong in his opinion that we should play a different way because everyone else plays the same. So he played a game that many people didn't like to see, but everyone hated to play against. So there's, there's that. And there's also the fact that he was a World Cup winner and never once, and in all the testimonies that his former players had said and all the tweets, never they all mentioned the fact that he never once brought up the fact that he was a World Cup winner. So I was, wanted to kind of hear your thoughts as, as fellow coaches uh, to that, the fact that he never brought up the fact that he was a world-class footballer himself. Um, when you look at some of the most famous football managers over the recent years, certainly in the Premiership, starting with Klopp at the moment and Mourinho a bit more recently and Ferguson, none of them really had standout playing careers, um, but they've obviously went on to be extremely successful managers. And you can argue that there's a slight difference between managing and coaching. Um, but I think, again, when you go back to, to squash and you look at some of the most successful coaches, uh, they're not always the best players. A lot of them have got some high-level playing experience, but maybe not at the very top of the game. Um, I'm thinking of people like... Um, geez, there's, there's hope for us yet. Yeah. <laughs> Malcolm Woodstrop would be a good one. Yeah, Malcolm's a good example. Even um, someone like Mike Way, who's been successful, um, Jonathan and now at Harvard. Um David Pearson was a good player, but probably not one of the best players in the world um, who's been very successful with the England team. Um, so I think there's, there's certainly, I feel as a coach that I learned a lot from my playing experience, but I, I think they're very separate. And what I like about that story about Jack Charlton is that even he, even though he did achieve at the very highest level, it never really defined him. And he certainly didn't use it as a, well, do what I do and, listen to what I say because I won the World Cup. Just on the other side, I think we've all worked closely with Peter Nicol and we would all agree that he's a great coach and someone we've learned from. So um, I think you can bring a lot to the table as a top player and share some of that and be a brilliant coach. But I think the people that seem to do that to me are the people that recognise that they're two completely different skills and one doesn't automatically give you the skills that you need to do the other well. Yeah, I think with um, with Peter, and we can, I think we can all attest to this, is he never really brings it up. He never really brings up his playing career or the glory days. I mean, he'll talk about it if you ask him, of course, but like you say, Stu, pretty much separates himself from Peter, the player, to Peter, the coach. And he doesn't define himself on what he's done, but on what he does. And he's Peter, the coach, just like it's Stuart, the coach, Christopher, the coach, Arthur, the coach, yada, yada. Yeah, it's interesting being able to uh, separate that. Like, you know, you said Jack Charlton, um, but, you know, never never brought it up. It, it's almost like you need to be able to use your experience, but being able to separate it from your message is, I think, can go a long way, right? And clearly the amount of people that are, uh, that are 
testifying to his humility and humbleness is, you know, it, it clearly left a, a good message with them. And the other message is probably like most, most people know if, if you're working, if you're working with someone on a daily basis and you're working with a team of, of athletes that are very serious, like they know your accomplishments. So I guess the more you bring it up, they're probably like, this guy's full of himself. Whereas if he never brings it up, it's almost like they know it, it probably sends an even more powerful message. Yeah. I think that applies, especially with higher level players as well, because they know enough about the game at that point to judge you on what you're saying. I've actually, my experience with younger juniors is they, they care a lot about, oh, how good are you? Like if you can get on court and play around with young kids, whether they're under 13 or under 15 and sort of show them a thing or two and do some trick shots. That's the thing that wows them. Whereas higher level players, especially up at like under 19 or sort of college players or pros, they, they understand the game enough to judge you independently on the information you're giving them. Uh, and I think they'll very quickly see through whether you're just relating back to your experience all the time. And that's another thing I noticed with Peter is that he gives examples from his playing career but he doesn't talk about who he was playing or the fact that he might have been playing in a British Open final. It was just a match where he went through this process. And that that applies at any level. Like a guy at a local club who really wants to win his next challenge match or his next like, ladder league match, he still ha- can learn the same things about the principles that Peter talks about in terms of, well, I got to the club early, I warmed up, I was prepared, I knew I had everything I needed in my kit bag. I, I went through my warm-up. That doesn't really matter whether you're playing at a World Open final or going down on a Thursday night to play a local league match. That's what Peter is very good at, is using those examples from his career in a way that is relevant and relatable to everyone that he's coaching. Yeah, I do think all or most coaches who've played would draw from their own experience and, and relate them to the students. Granted, they weren't all British Open finals and, and what have you. But I do believe, and I am an advocate of, that you had to have played the game not necessarily at the highest level, but just enough just so you understand what a student or a player's needs are and, and to make improvements and to get to the next level and the next level after that and so on. And also, you know, how technical improvements can help students have a variety of options on the ball and to hit the ball into certain areas in certain ways. And, and then, of course, on top of that, more importantly, is what's going on between the ears and the emotions, the highs and the lows and, and how you can kind of navigate your way through, you know, tough situations and I think there's also a lot of subtlety in squash as well that's quite hard to understand and appreciate if you haven't been on court and played at not the highest level, but a level high enough to understand that. And I actually think that's quite often something that you see in referees is that for all the training they've had and all they've been told about the game, a lot of them haven't really experienced it firsthand. And the best referees are the people that again, maybe haven't experienced it, but are at least switched on enough to understand the subtleties of blocking and line to the ball and those sort of things. And as a coach, again, I think it's quite hard, especially in a sport of squash, where there's a lot of little things that you maybe don't see at first sight, just watching the game, that you probably need to know what's going on at that deeper level to, to really help your player. That's the beauty of squash as well. It is so subtle. And there's so it's so complex, and the better like your students get, like the more complexity comes into the sessions, the more subtle. Yeah, I just, oh, it's, what a game, guys! Love it. It is so, fun. Oh yeah, it's fun. fun. <laughs> I know it's like do you and it's an interesting sport when you're coaching someone to pick up a new skill, say, or pick up a subtlety within within the game, and the amount of different ways you can approach it or kind of frame it in a way that it makes sense for that person and their game style and how they play. It, it just is super, super deep. And I, I kind of, you know, I like it. You, you can start on a topic. I find you can start on one specific topic when you're reviewing film or like you're looking for a specific thing in that film and you end up talking about 12 to 15 different pretty, pretty like deep squash, you know, strategies or um, subtleties within the game. And it, it's so hard to compartmentalize like individual little things, because within that one, within that one little, um, you know, tactic around the T line or something, there's so many different, different uh, 
ways that it can happen and ways you can set it up. And it's just fun to, fun to bang our heads against the wall at it. Yeah. And even that same conversation can be one thing for one person, but totally different for somebody else, depending mm-hmm. on what their, you know, physical makeup is or how their mental capacity is with receiving, retaining information or the personality of their conservative or what the, what's the opposite of conservative brain fart. Uh, reckless <laughs> yeah anyways reckless <laughs> but yeah it's it's brilliant no two days are the same yeah that's also where like we were saying your understanding of the game really shines through in those moments when you're getting into like you were saying chris those nitty-gritty details of what's happening and again if you're working with decent high level players they're going to know straight away whether you're just talking out your ass or making sense <laughs> yeah can't do a trick yeah, yeah. shot then <laughs> and, and I, I don't know about you guys but that's something I think that's for me has definitely changed over time I think when I when I was 22 years old coaching people basically my same age and and so coming straight out of college squash coaching college squash players within six months of my last college squash match all you're doing all you can do is kind of relate to what you did the year, you know, what you did the year before in your, in your competition. And I think you just tend to like kind of fall back on that. Whereas I think what I've done over time is you, you learn what the best people in the world do. And then you're not talking about yourself. You're talking about, well, if you want to do what these, the top 10 players in the world do, this is, this is how they do it. This is how they frame it. This is how they set it up. And then they go and watch video and they know if you're right or wrong because they should be able to. They should be able to see what you're talking about if you're right. Um, and so I think that's how I've developed over time. Yeah, you recognize like the common denominators to play the game a certain way. And I de- yeah, I would attest to that as well. Like in the last couple of years, especially like development as a coach is. I think it's a little bit of practice as well. I don't know about you guys, but the more you do it, the more you see, the more you understand. Like it's a skill, right? Like it's not like almost in the same way that hitting good length is a skill where yeah. like if you practice it, you get better at it. You understand you can hit a different, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm going off a little bit here, but I do, I do find the more I've done it, the better I feel, the more. The message just gets clearer and sharper and a little more on point. Right. I think over time, like, you know, you, I think when I was younger, I took, you know, took the best things I heard from six or eight different people. So your mind's kind of clouded with, with different perspectives and different coaching points. And then you start to filter out what you think is the most clear and direct message that you can get across. And you notice if it's working or not, because people are able to take that message and do it, or if they can't do it, they at least understand it. But if you're, if you're spouting off like kind of bits and pieces of three or four different things, three or four different perspectives on the same topic, you're clouding their mind just because your mind is clouded. So I think, yeah, over time, I think you, you, you dial it in and then you, you change as the sport changes. Right. I think it's changing so fast nowadays. Like it's so hard to tell people to play a certain way because no pros or like, you know, there no two pros are even playing the same. I feel in the top ten, got so many different styles right now. Yeah, be- but I still, I think there's a place still for the fundamentals. I've actually been really encouraged in recent years by the success that players like Paul Call and Joe Macon have had in particular, because they have a game that is based around a lot of the the basics. If you want to, I don't want to disparage them because they're both phenomenal players, but. They're very well structured, they're physically very fit, and they're very disciplined. And even someone like Alec Farag, who probably moves the ball around the court a little bit more than both of them, is still pretty structured and disciplined in the way he approaches the game. He maybe uses the front half of the court a little bit more, but I wouldn't say it was in a reckless, sort of going for Knicks type uh, style. Uh, again, even Shibagi, who's probably been the most dominant player in the last five years is is really hard to just break down because of what he brings and the way that he can just keep the pressure on for long periods of time. And there's obviously other guys that probably do open the court up a little bit more. And I'm thinking particularly of in, in the current uh, crop of top players, particularly 
uh, Gawad and Tarek Momin are two players that really do like to use the front of the court and maybe take a little bit more risk. Um, but I still see a, a lot of value in the basics that I've tried to encourage players to, to exploit for a number of years now. I think all the top players, though, to be fair, and even if you look at Rami, who's someone who's obviously a different league in, in many respects, his length is unbelievable. Like the fundamentals, yeah. everyone has those. Like I think the stronger your base, the more, like with that strong base, it's like a foundation for a house or for a building. If it's a strong, you know, sky's the limit type of thing. That's what I've, I, I'm a big advocate of that. If you, if you don't, you're just going to be running, right? Like, like you, yeah, you don't, you don't get opportunities without, uh, without being super accurate. Oh yeah. All good stuff. Okay. Moving on. Yeah. So let's get into my interview with Canadian recently retired Sam Cornette and um, talk about kind of her junior career scrapping and battling to get into, uh, you know, that top 50 in the world and then, and then what she did to get into the top 20 and what she's going to do in the future in retirement. Um, So Thanks again, Sam, for coming on. She shares a wonderful story about sharing a house at the Pan Ams with my brother, Nick Sackvey, and how many times he whips his butt out in a single trip. And we might get Nick on to defend, defend this move. Um, but I think, we'll, I think we can probably get, uh, I don't know, I would, say, I would say 50 people to, uh, to back up that, that it is, uh, it is his trademark. Okay, Around the Court Squash Podcast is happy to have on the show today Samantha Cornett from Deep River, Ontario, Canada, near Ottawa. She's a four-time Canadian national champ. She has 13 PSA titles, and she has a world ranking high of number 23 including a plethora of Pan American medals. Um, Sam, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Super excited. Good morning. Morning, morning. Excited to be here. Um, and so j- just to catch everyone up a little bit, um, you played junior squash in Canada with me. We'll get to that in a little. Um, and in 2007, you turned pro. And when did you kind of officially make the retirement announcement? I know you last year around nationals knew you were going to, um, you know, start the next chapter of your life. But, uh, you know, when did you kind of officially say, you know, I'm, I'm done? Um, I think I, I, I knew I was done, like you said, probably just before nationals last year. And then um, I played my last PSA in, it was like end of October, uh, 2019. I don't even know what year it is anymore. <laughs> and, um, I, I started to kind of, it, it, I wanted to put some thought into it. Um, so I, and once I got caught up with school, I, I, I found it hard to like put the amount of thought I wanted to, to thank the, the all the people I wanted to thank for who have helped me. And, it turned out that like at the start of this quarantine, that was that like nice amount of time that I could give everything some proper thought. And that, I guess that's when it was official, but uh, I hadn't, I'd only played one pro tournament this past season. So. Okay. That's what I thought. Um, Awesome. And so let's take it back a little, Uh, you know, growing up uh, playing on the Canadian junior circuit. I mean, I, some of my favorite memories of all time. Um, yep. And just wanted Pan to Ams. start with 2006 Pan American games. We were teammates yes. in Guatemala. That was a, a pretty fun trip. Um, Unreal. Yeah. I remember just That's one of the it. best memories of my life for sure. That yeah. Boys wow. and girls team going back and forth and prank wars. Um, you know, do, doing the old knock and knock and garbage can full of water. And I think that one got us in a little trouble. Yeah, I remember being in some trouble there. I'm surprised they let us stay out our week at the hotel there. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and then one thing I wanted to ask, um, from, you know, you played World Juniors for Canada, and obviously I, I 
read some of your your um, recent interviews and whatnot, and you said, you know, you knew from probably around the time you were 15 that you wanted to make make a go of squash and and take it very seriously. How did you feel you stacked up in World Juniors against some of your you know peers and people your age, and um, and then kind of from there, what were those first few years on tour like um, making the jump? Big questions. Um, so I guess I got to play like British Opens, British Junior Opens, and Scottish Junior Opens when I was a kid, and I'd say. I had like a nice healthy balance. I feel like my life has been like a nice healthy balance um, of like, I would do well at the Scottish junior open and like maybe win or come second or whatever. And then I would, you know, make the round of 32, 16 at the British. So I'd be like, Oh, a little success. Oh, I just got trounced. And, and then I would have a few matches where I would feel like I was in deep with like, some of the better, like, not the top players, but, like, the better, like, the bottom of the top players, if I may. Um, so I, I always felt like I I was on the edge of, you know, figuring it out, um, which I would say was kind of, like, my whole career. Um, and I, I love that chase, like, that try, trying to be better, trying to, like, edge up um, little by little. Probably started from playing Laura Gemmel so much uh, as a kid, like always just trying to figure out how do I win one game, you know? Um, So I suppose that's kind of like, I I had a little fire that I wanted to like figure things out from like, you know, my first world juniors where I can't remember. I think I maybe made nine through 16. I'm not quite sure, but um, yeah, there are always all those people that were better and that like I could look towards. Yeah, super, super helpful having uh, having those people. I don't think we didn't have tons of them in Canada. I had, I had my, my Colin West, my uh, Achilles heel, yeah. who always who yeah. always held me back, but, but also probably made me a ton better because I was always chasing mm-hmm. someone. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we didn't have, have them all, but luckily got the opportunity to go overseas and test ourselves against some of those people, so that's, that's great. And yeah. – so obviously in those first three, four years, um, you know, like some of your peers would have been in university and you were on tour, kind of squash university, I saw you call it, um, you know, <laughs> sure. getting your getting your education on the tour. But, you know, what was that like? And like, who were who you chasing in Canada between, you know, 2007, 2013, when you were searching for that first national title and, um and kind of, you know, what, who was the benchmark? Uh, there was a few, I think, but who were you chasing yeah. those years? Um, so when I first started out, I can remember like playing Mel Jans, um, Elena Miller, um, Carolyn Russell, like, you know, as like they were at, at the, the top and, and they were on the national team. So those were the people I was like looking at and, you know, role models. Um, and then, I feel like my career isn't very long. Like so many people have retired <laughs> during my career, but maybe that's like, maybe, you know, I'm the first one retiring for the people that are on the team now. Um, so like from, like, I remember Elena retiring, uh, her last tournament was with like Steph Miranda and I at the Commonwealth games. And I, I like asked her a bunch of questions about it. And she said she was just so excited to, um, not be sore in the morning. And now I totally get that. It's, it's <laughs> awesome. Um, but yeah, so like Elena and then Steph and Miranda and Alex Norman uh, and I were all like switching around and, and beating each other uh, well, once I eventually got to that level because they were better than me for sure. Um, and then once those guys retired, um, then this new crop came up. Um, they were just like right on the edge, like, you know, waiting there. And so like there's Danielle and Holly and I, um, Susie King was in there. So I've seen like a lot of, a lot of good players. Um, I think the first time I ever thought like I had a good chance at being like the best in Canada and being, you know, good at squash was when we were at Pan Am games. We were, it was 2009. 
11, I think. Correct. And it was my first Pan Am Games, thank you very much. And <laughs> I beat Miranda, who I don't think I had beat yet. Um, and it put me into like, I think I beat Blatch and Miranda, I don't know in what order and in what event at the Pan Ams, but um, it got me to like the final against Sam Turan. And I just had like in that one event, I had so many experiences and a couple wins that I, I was like, ooh, you can do this. And I'd, I just had a couple PSA titles as well at 5K. So I was like feeling some momentum and um, felt like I was on track where I wanted to be going. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so took, you know, I think that's something that I've noticed. There's obviously there, these, there's these certain players that come through, break through right away. But mm-hmm. for, for the majority of people, it, it, you kind of like start to recognize them when they get up to a certain world ranking, but you don't really see those, that, how long and how hard it is to get there. And, yeah. and um, a lot of people probably in that time drop off and, and say, oh, I'm just going to do something else. So yeah. yeah, kudos to you for, you know, sticking through. It's like good four or five years of, of kind of grinding it out to then get yeah. to a point where you're like, okay, losing. yeah, I'm a, I'm a player. Yeah. I'm a player now. I'm, and then, yeah. And then, you know, winning, yeah. winning some medals at uh, the Pan Ams um, must've mm-hmm. been super fun that first time. And then, and then your first title in 2013, what was that like uh, winning the, the nationals? Who, who, who'd you play? That one was Alex Norman in the final. Um, it felt good, but I think I beat her a couple times that season. So it didn't feel like um, we've gone back and forth for sure, but it didn't feel out of place. So mm-hmm. I was really happy, but I didn't feel like I had done anything exceptional in terms of like my performance, but yeah, I was really, yeah. I was stoked for sure. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then kind of taking that, you want to want a couple more back to back and then winning again in 2019 when you, you kind of knew that was going to be your last nationals as a full-time professional. Right. So um, what, what was that one like? That was a cool one. Um, I was fired up. I had like, feel like I still had some potential, but my brain like was kind of moving away from squash, but I was, I had learned some stuff. Um, and I, I feel like that was kind of like a culmination of all those things. Like I was, I wanted to win so bad and I had like, I've always been a bit of a people pleaser and towards the end of my career, I was kind of figuring out that that didn't matter that much. Um, and I could put that more into perspective and so for like the last probably like three or four years of my my pro career, I felt like so fired up and I I, I loved competing. I'm so into it. And uh, that last Nationals, like I fought really, really hard. Um, yeah, it felt really good. Awesome. And then, yeah. you, and then you got um, a third Pan Americans in um, last summer? Yep. Yeah, and how how was that one to to finish off? Uh, was similar team probably to twenty fifteen or slightly different? Slightly different. Um, it was uh, myself. This this most recent was myself, Danielle, and Holly, and your charming brother. We were all <laughs> uh, Sean and Andrew were all in one one apartment together. Wow! You can possibly imagine yeah, the amount of times I mean... that I saw your brother's butt. Yeah, around yeah. that apartment. Yeah, just spent ten days with them, and yeah, <laughs> at least a few hours a day. It's out. <laughs> we'll have to get him on to defend himself, but he doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's enough people to uh, back up our stories that, that he I doesn't think have we a can chance. Yeah, find think, some more sources. <laughs> yeah, I think there's enough picture evidence from that trip, actually. Right, the underwater, uh, the underwater snorkeling um, beluga whale. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's been pulling that move for years. Oh man, classic! And, and then, and then to you know, culmination of the pro career, uh, were you still training pretty hard when you got to win your final event at home in Ottawa? That must have been amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it was because I hadn't been back to play very many tournaments in Ottawa, so it was like it was very special. Um, had a massive cry because like every, you know what like I'm sure you've played 
at home at White Oaks and like you just know everyone that's in the stands and mm -hmm. uh, I had a good feeling it was my last one so we had like a, I had a good cry with everyone and um, I wouldn't say I was in the best of shape for that event but I really wanted to win um, and I guess I had like some decent pers like I was still hitting the ball but I had some decent perspective with like playing school like going to school at the same time so I just felt pretty relaxed as well yeah yeah that's awesome and so before we get into, you know, what you're up to in retirement, I want to do a quick rapid fire of a few questions about, about uh, you know, your squash career. So favorite tournament? Chicago, Windy City. And um, favorite city, if not Chicago, favorite city to play in? Favorite city to play in? Ooh. Rapid fire, Sam. Um, <laughs> Hong Kong. Hong Kong, nice. Um, your favorite PSA title? Probably this most recent one in Ottawa. Nice. Yeah. Um, any highlight, like any highlight win, one big, you know, uh, person that you beat that you, you know, loved? Um, can I give you two? Yeah. Uh, Dipika Palakal and Joel King. Ooh, nice. Um, favorite travel partner or multiple? Um, multiple, Nikki Todd, Steph, Edmison, Randa Renieri, um, Dion Safri. I have to keep going. Amazing. Yeah. Um, favorite moment competing for Canada? Um, favorite moment... Probably um, doubles match, definitely doubles match, Pan Ams in Toronto. Amazing. Big loss in front of the home crowd, but epic loss. <laughs> awesome. And so um, I want to talk about what's next for you in retirement, but speaking on the doubles, I wanted to mention that um, you've had a couple awesome events with with multiple people. Um, I think you and Nikki, you and Danielle have also had some great, some great wins. Um, any, any doubles tour action in the, in the future for you? Hardball doubles. I should I'd say. like to say like, I definitely thought I would. Um, but one of the things that I wasn't like, I, I assume that I would, I, you know, um, but I, one of the things that I wasn't as into as I was finishing up the singles career was, the traveling, like often traveling, mm -hmm. um, traveling for fun. I'm excited about one day once this is over, but I wasn't like, I'm not craving that, that get up and go for squash. So we'll see. Yeah. I'd like to dabble. I definitely like to dabble cause it's so much fun. And the doubles tour is a blast. Um, so we'll see what happens. I don't know. I hear you. I'm, I, I love it. I enjoy it so much. And the weekends are super fun, but, um, yeah but I already spend like, you know, half a year traveling, coaching squash. And so it is, yeah. it's a lot. Yeah. Um, Live and right. breathe. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, what have you been up to, um, you know, the last, the last six months or so in the last few months in, um, you know, in our new, new kind of world. And then what, uh, what's next for you in, in retirement and, and after school? Um, so the last few months have probably looked like most people, like squash. I'm I, like my, I'm at school at college here in Toronto, but I am coaching squash is my job on the side. So I think most people's kind of, everyone looks the same. Um, I'm at home most of the day and I have a couple clients that I coach online. Um, doesn't really take much of my time. So I, I took a, couple extra college courses to get ahead for the fall when everything will be online for me. So um, I'm studying since September, I've been studying recreation management for uh, the elderly. Um, so it's called rec management gerontology at George Brown college, which is a community college just down the street from me. It's super handy. And I've been absolutely loving it. Like classes are small and intimate and like very practical um, every class is helping you do your job better. So 
I'm super excited. I graduate um, next spring and I might do some more schooling after because uh, with like the funding that we've got from Sport Canada, we get a ton of tuition support, which is amazing. So I think I'm going to be like a, a professional student for a little bit. Awesome. Uh, yeah. And how, how do you, how have you been adapting to like the online school versus the in-person? Were you really enjoying the in-person since, you know, you, this is your first college experience, right? So yeah, I was loving in-person. Um, I'm not, I'm really good at working out and like doing squash stuff, but I'm not really a homework person. Um, so I'm getting it done, but like, t- for example, today I have something due at 11 p.m. that I haven't started, and tomorrow <laughs> I have two things due at 11 p.m. that I haven't started. So it's not my forte, this online thing, but I'm sort of hacking my way through. Yeah, you're adjusting to the, to the student life well, the yes. last-minute procrastination. <laughs> yes. I, I, I mastered that. Don't worry. Oh. <laughs> I, can give you some, I can give you some tips. You don't oh, need to start no, that I don't 11. Need anymore. You don't need to start that 11 p.m. assignment until after dinner. You'll you'll crank <laughs> it out. <laughs> I need to talk to someone else. Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, kind of, you know, another question: uh, What was the decision like to um, to you know go go to school and in in a field that was different from squash, like did spending the rest of your life in squash kind of cross your mind or did you want to separate, you know, you spent a lot of time in squash every single day um, for so many years. Did you want to kind of turn that chapter a little, obviously you're keeping your hand in it and coaching and, and it sounds like you always want to continue to kind of be involved in the community. But um, what was that decision like to go kind of a different route outside of squash? Um, I guess I always want, like, like you say, I, I want a hand in squash always because it's given me so much. Like I, how many people have spent time with me? Um, how many coaches have given me their time? And I, I haven't like, I haven't paid much for it. There's so many volunteers that just got me into it at the very beginning, like grassroots level. Um, there's so many people giving back to squash and the like longer I've been involved, the more I've seen it. So I know I want to be a part of that. Um, I don't know what that will look like yet. At one point I was thinking like national coach. Um, but I don't, again, like the traveling thing, I'm not sure that that's what I want, but maybe like a mentoring type of role. That would be really cool. Um, and then I still like to play because obviously I remember when I was um, younger getting to play people that were like, you know, well, like the top players at the time was amazing, but also the people who had just retired was, um, I realized the sacrifice that they probably made in competing. Like it's probably annoying to lose to some 19 year old kid, but uh, it was important. It's like, it was an important step for me, you know, playing Mel Jans and eventually beating her. Like that's a big moment um, for a younger player. So I'll definitely be involved in that capacity too. Um, And then the like change of career, um, coaching, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it in smaller bits. Um, so I guess I never saw it as like a full-time, uh, thing. And I also am not sure I want to do like the evenings, you know, um, Mm -hmm. the evening work, which is, I mean, unless I could get into something like what you're doing. Um, yeah, I, I like, I'm interested in like the daytime work and, uh, I had never had, uh, an eye on any career. I, all I thought about was squash for a really long time. Um, so I got like an inkling towards, uh, working with seniors and I had just like a small feeling for it, uh, after living with my grandparents for like a million years when I was on tour. And, um, I, 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 I didn't realize like how many jobs and how many, you know, things were available in that, in that sector. So it's been pretty cool. I did a little volunteering at the start and I loved it. So that's like, well, maybe like two years ago. And um, since then I've just like, I know it, it's right for me. That's awesome. Yeah. Sounds like you took a much uh, more proactive and mature approach than, than a lot of, a lot of squash players who stop and they're like, okay, well, what do I do now? Yeah, um, I feel lucky. Yeah, yeah, it's gotta be tough though. I, I can 
you know, I, I'm fully invested in the coaching, want to do some other things on the side. So kind of the reverse and yeah. try and, you know, try my hand in some other things as well. But, um, every two or three years when I was younger, it would be like, do I fully want to do this? And then when you actually have to start thinking about what you would do if you got, if, if you did something outside of squash, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, because, it's a big world. <laughs> yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. Um, but that's great. Okay. That's a wrap. That's uh, the, the rest of that interview was on last week's episode with Chris asking Sam about her thoughts on Renee Melwalili. You can check that out on episode 10. I think we'll leave it there, fellas. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Stuart. That's episode 11 in the bank. And once we'd finished episode 10, it was a mini milestone. So text the fellas and said, what, what do you reckon? Uh, do, do you want to have a week off and maybe go again next week? No chance. Boys, <clears throat> the boys are loving it. Happy days. Uh, thanks again for listening and for everyone who shared and liked our, our pages uh, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter yeah really appreciate it and, and hopefully you're enjoying what you hear and, and again don't be shy in sharing it amongst your friends on another note it seems that most people are going to be back in the squash court if not already by the end of next week so yeah happy days all around no harm checking out episode one where the PSA physiotherapist Derek Ryan gives tips to the club player and to any player really in going from you know not playing for such a long period of time to into playing and easing into it and he has some some good tips in there to avoid injury and and whatnot cheers have a good one cheers